Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, August 6th, and this is the weekly market update. The disclaimer, anything that you hear or see on this podcast or video is not to be taken as investment advice. I'm not an investment advisor. I don't know your personal situation. Please take this as information only. Do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Okay, uh, just before I get started, a couple housekeeping things. Um, I did the poll among the viewers on YouTube, and the consensus was overwhelming to continue to do the weekly. Um, I was going to substitute a live chat this week instead of the weekly, and uh, overwhelmingly, people spoke up and said, no, they didn't want that. They wanted the weekly. Uh, I guess we could do the weeklies and then supplement occasionally with a live chat. Um, so. We'll consider doing that in the future. Um, the other thing is people have been asking me, I mean, not, there's a small cohort of people that used to enjoy the political rants and things of that. And I had taken those to uh, separate that from the um, financial discussions or the portfolio discussions and the weekly market update. And they asked me if I would bring those back. And I've decided not to do that just because of the fact that it's just soul taxing for me to, you know, sit there and go through all that um, stuff week to week and try to put together. It's just, you know, it's, it's not edifying for me to do that. Uh, it's a lot of not, you know, pleasant stuff to look at and think about and clutter my mind with. So unfortunately, I will not be doing that any further. Maybe once in a while, if something major comes along, uh, but uh, it's just not—it's uh, just not worth it to me to do it. I just don't uh, um, like cluttering my mind with all of that nonsense. There's enough of it you get bludgeoned with during the week, and then trying to put together a video and discussing these things is uh, not something I enjoy doing. Um, also, I'd like to just uh, point out for you know, the support we're pushing now to try to get 10,000 subscribers. We're, you know, around 9,400, 9,350, something like that. So if you are watching this video and you enjoy, a lot of people tell me they enjoy the videos. Not everybody's going to be a subscriber to the newsletter or to the Patreon. That's understandable. But people say they enjoy coming here every week. Uh, they like this news. Some people don't like it, but they still like to watch it. You know what? Uh, do me a favor and like, subscribe, uh, make comments. That helps helps us out. So um, if you uh, are watching these videos and you want to help us out in a non-monetary way, you can do that by showing your support that way. All right, let's get into it. So I want to do a, like a brief, you know, with oil down like 10 bucks this week and kind of rolled over. Um, I've been listening to a lot of commentators and doing my own thinking on this and you know I wanted to put a like where we are where are we now type you know situation so overall we think long term like for the duration of this decade we're in a energy crisis that goes without saying we have a shortage of molecules overall um, a lot of this has been as we've talked in the past because of lack of investment but a lot of it is just poor policy choices in my opinion um, that's my view. A lot of people have a different view. 
And, you know, we have this incessant climb of the ascent of mankind, especially in Asia. A lot of countries people don't think about, you know, sub-Saharan Africa has a billion people. A lot of those people have never flipped a light switch. You have countries like Indonesia that are getting more wealthy. India, these are huge populations that are just now entering the beginning stages of their commodity, you know, upward thrust in their commodity uh, consumption. So that's the overlying long-term trend for the rest of the decade, in my view, underinvestment. Um, but that's going to be punctuated with times where we have cyclical declines in the economy. And that's what we're at right now, I think. And that's why we're seeing weakness across the commodity sector. And I just wanted to remind you of that and talk about that a little bit. You know, it goes without saying, uh, the first bullet point here, China is obviously in a recession. It's self-induced, uh, primarily because of some of the issues they're having, you know, when you forcibly shut, you know, millions of people in their homes, it's going to have an impact on economic uh, uh, growth or just the economy in general. And so they have this zero COVID policy and they don't seem to be relinquishing it. We just had, I think I saw in the news yesterday that they're put a million people in lockdown in Wuhan. So until this ends uh, and then the Chinese can really kind of open fully back up, uh, that's a major consumer of commodities. Um, China consumes in many cases, like for example, in copper, uh, it's 50% of the world's copper. So um, I don't see, you know, there's been some speculation that after the party Congress in October, that they'll quietly shelve this policy. Uh, who knows? I don't know. I don't know why the policy is in effect. It doesn't work. It's been uh, shown throughout the world. I don't know if it's what what the reasoning is behind this. If it's just, you know, the Communist Party decreed that we will do this and it will work. So therefore, we're going to see it through. I don't know. I don't have enough insight. I don't know enough about it. All I can tell you is, is that they are, uh, you know, they're in a recession. They have, you know, some debt things happening in their property markets. We've seen some bank runs. You know, it's not, you know, things are not hitting on 16 cylinders. The economy is misfiring. So that's obviously going to have a big impact on the resource sector. And nevertheless, that will resolve at some point, in my view. And uh, then, you know, we will see that change. You know, I pointed out in several videos prior to this, that they've already committed to over a trillion dollars in infrastructure spending and additional spending. I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm not saying it's healthy long-term for their economy, but that's what they're going to do. This is what they have done in the past. And, you know, people are creatures of habits. They're going to go back to the well. So when is that spending going to start taking place? What's the impact and the timing? I don't know, but that is out there. Um, Europe is obviously in a recession. That goes without saying. Um, the energy crisis, the worldwide energy crisis, and then the sanction regime that was put on to uh, reduce energy imports from Russia as consequence for the invasion of Ukraine is boomeranged and backfired on Europe. And that has pushed, uh, in my view, uh, the, the continent into recession. Um, in order to have economic growth, you need energy inputs. Basically, the economy is the conversion of energy into products and services. Um, as we've said before, every activity that we do, every product that we consume, transport, what have you, is a derivative of energy inputs.
And so when you discombobulate supply chains or you change uh, what have been in place systems and disrupt them, then obviously it's going to have a negative effect and we're seeing that. And so we also say, I've been saying this for a while now, the US is in a technical recession, right? You know, the, it's uh, the prior, the historical narrative for defining a recession is two consecutive um, quarters of declining GDP. Well, we've seen that. And of course, now we have the regime because we're in a political and election cycle in 90 days or so for the congressional elections. You know, we have current party in charge trying to redefine in Orwellian discussions about what a real recession is or why we're not in a recession. And so um, people will cite like yesterday, the jobs report, but what you need to understand is jobs are, uh, the jobs numbers are a lagging indicator, okay? Not, not only that, they are subject to tremendous amounts of revisions. And so I would suggest to you that when, you know, we've had now almost two months straight or a month and a half, two months straight of declining gasoline and diesel prices, they're still fairly high relative to the historic norm. But I would suggest to you that that's sapped a lot of consumer uh, spending and sediment. We've shown that consumer sediment is at record decade lows. It's at all time lows. Now, I suggest that that will bounce as these energy prices come in because of this recession. Uh, but uh, maybe not, I mean, people are pretty riled up and antagonized. And so we have a bifurcated class here in the US. I mean, there's upper middle class people, wealthy people. Uh, it doesn't really affect them. Um, I don't really see it. I, I see the higher prices. It doesn't really bother me. I, I have sufficient funds, thankfully, to be able to ride through it. But there are many people, I see people begging all the time. I live in a relatively upscale neighborhood and I see people begging in front of the grocery store for money. So something I never saw before. Um, parts of Houston, you can go to and see people standing under freeway underpasses. You know, that's not out here where I'm at, but it's starting to happen. And so the working class people, the people that live hand to mouth, these inflation rates are killing them. And then you, you know, they can't, they were barely making ends meet as it was. And then you raise their fuel and food costs I mean, it just pushes people over the edge. And so that's not going to be conducive to, you know, an economy growing that's, you know, whatever you want to call it, 70 to 80% consumption. Um, talked about this already, high energy prices. You know, if you have a set amount of money or salary or spending, okay, you have a certain amount of spending that has to go into your housing, your food, your energy costs, and then you have discretionary spending. If your costs are increasing for these things, you know, that you need to survive, then you're going to obviously have less discretionary income. Therefore, consumption is going to go down. The economy is going to contract. Uh, one thing I would point out, though, is even though we're seeing all of this, I mean, we're 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 seeing, you know, depending on where you want to look, natural gas prices now over eight dollars in MCF, record prices, which I'll show again in Europe, um, oil prices relatively high, you know, on a historic norm, although I suggest there's probably going to be a lot more weakness uh, in the short term, in medium term. Um, but, uh, you know, as long as you have like three or four of the major economic zones in the, in the world in recession, I don't see how you can, you know, have, an, have a view that 
you know, energy prices won't weaken. It's just that simple. I've listened to a lot of like Twitter spaces recently, and there's been a lot of conjecture around, well, you know, the EIA is statistics are manipulated and look at this and look at that. The bottom line is consumption is going down because the world's going into a recession. The major economic blocks are in recession already. Okay, that will be a short to medium term phenomenon. And, you know, eventually the overall trend of the lack of investment and the increase in, in demand that happen uh, over time will resolve to forcing uh, consumption back up of energy and energy prices will recover. Now, this is the this is the this is the uh, bind. This is the this is the. Um, problem that people find themselves in. Um, well, how far will oil prices drop? I have no clue. If I knew how to predict the future, if I had a crystal ball, I wouldn't be on here talking about these things and trying to figure them out. Okay. I would just position myself and take advantage of it. And I would be a billionaire. We cannot know the future uh, perfectly. So the next question is, well, if you have a view that the bias is towards the downside, why not sell? Well, me personally, this is where we go back to, you have to be, have an individual plan. And, you know, if you just bought energy, energy stocks or oil stocks, like in April or May, then you're probably down. If you bought them a year and a half ago, when I bought them, I'm substantially up. I have a long-term view. Okay. So it depends on your, your, when you what your positioning is, how much risk you're willing to take, what you bought these at, things of this nature. I would suggest to you, though, that as oil prices go down, we're seeing, you know, uh, investors like Warren Buffett, and I, and I don't want to say like, we just parrot whatever these people say. I mean, he continues to buy more and more oxy stock, because I think he has the view that that longer term, there's going to be a, uh, because of the ESG mandates, because of the lack of investment, because of all of these things coming together, that it, as we get through this period of uh, weaker economics, uh, economic uh, growth or recession, if you want to call it, which always resolves eventually that we're going to, you know, return just because of the fact of the people we have on earth and the growing areas of the world in Asia, demand will come back. So it depends what your time frame is. It depends where you bought the companies and stocks. It depends on how much risk you want to take. Uh, it depends if you are successful at trading in and out. These are all things that I can't speak to for everybody listening to this. And some people say, well, that's a cop out. You know, you don't want to uh, go on the record. Going on the record, the bias is to the downside, 65, maybe 50. Some people are saying this could be like a 2008. I don't think it's going to be like a 2008. Okay. Uh, but you know, who knows? So when you sell, when do you get back in? See, these are the problems that a lot of people have trying to trade. Now, some people on Twitter claim that they're, they, they catch every top and every bottom. They're out there, believe me. They're, they, and they will tell you that, you know, listen to them because they, you know, have fun staying poor if you can't trade. I'm not a trader. I've tried to trade. I've tried to trade in and out. I can't do it. I try to figure out the trends, the longer term trends, and then I try to ride that wave, understanding that there's going to be volatility, especially with resource markets. Um, you know, this is why we kind of got out of copper. We kind of saw what was happening, um, but in gold, because it was so obvious, but, you know, we, the thinking was, okay, this, this energy markets were just really short on molecules. And yes, you can forestall putting like a new 
project construction project in that would need copper or nickel or aluminum, but this consumption of energy facilitates basically the life as we know it. And so my thinking is, okay, it's not going to drop as much as I thought or what happened typically in a recession. So that's my thinking on it. Um, I hope that wasn't too confusing. And there's plenty of other opinions out there. I'm not saying my opinion is the right one or my methodology is the correct one, but this is what uh, my view is. And there's many people that watch these videos and comment. They they trade in and out. You know, God bless them. I hope that uh, they catch the tops and the bottoms. I, I, I'm just not able to do that consistently. Uh, it's not hard to catch a long-term trend bottom when everything's completely blown out. But these cyclical... Uh, cyclical volatility tops and bottoms inside of a longer term secular trend, I'm just not good at. Um, another thing I think people are kind of not paying attention to is that the sticky higher inflation that we're seeing is going to cause central bank tightening to go on for longer than many are anticipating. Um, but we'll see, right? Uh, again, my theory is, is that the Federal Reserve will continue to tighten until they break something. What that's going to end up being, I don't know. But, uh, you know, we're seeing overall around the world, um, basically, it's not coordinated, but the trend is for tightening around the world. There's websites that you can go to that track uh, central bank actions, and most of the actions are tightening, which reduces liquidity, which reduces, you know, uh, economic activity as uh you know, we're seeing now a lot of the bubblicious things uh, around these uh, cryptocurrencies, real estate. I didn't put it in this week's chart, but I just saw a chart recently. I mean, basically, real estate markets, you know, prices are crashing, which is what you would expect to see. But you're already seeing now mortgage rates pulling in. You're seeing the bond market starting to pull in. So, you know, are we where are we at in the tightening cycle? Are we in the third inning, the sixth inning, then seventh inning? I don't know. So. Uh, I would suggest we're probably further along than than um, closer to the end than we are to the beginning. So it'll be interesting to see. I think, you know, a lot of people kind of freaked out with this jobs report that came in on Friday. You know, what, don't want to get on the macro too much because you can just get so far into the weeds with this. But I think a lot of people are saying, okay, see, that's just showing that the economy's not pulling. Remember, jobs are a lagging indicator. That's one of the last things you're going to see roll over. And so I would suggest to you, let's see what this uh, inflation print looks like coming up, you know, for July. I think with, you know, oil and gas prices basically coming down for the last, and pump prices coming down for the last um, uh, basically month and a half, two months, that you're going to see, you know, see that, you know, it's going to take a while for the, you know, housing prices to flow into the uh, owner's equivalent rent and stuff like that, these other components. But like I've pointed out before, you know, the commodity prices inputs are down quite a bit. Uh, used car prices are down quite a bit. I've pointed that out. Um, so I think that, you know, if we get a, believe me, the Federal Reserve doesn't want to keep raising rates, you know, like Volcker style. They know what that means. But then again, you know, they don't want to be accused. They're already behind the, the power curve on this. So they're looking for, you know, a situation where they can say, if the print comes in and it looks like inflation's peaked, then they can say, okay, well, we're only going to raise rates 50 basis points next meeting, then it goes down to 25. Then you can see a pathward to eventual, you know, neutral and then the next rate cutting cycle. So 
that's what the market's forecasting is the first quarter of 2023. We'll see. It's going to depend on the numbers. I would suggest to you that one of the places that uh, inflation is rolled over already is in Russia, and that central bank is cutting rates. So anyways, I know people don't like me to talk about Russia too much on here that aggravates some people, but I'm just stating a fact. Not, not only that, their uh, PMIs are on the increase, so their economy is actually starting to expand. That's not from their central bank here. That's S&P reporting that. Anyway, so to sum up, the world is now in a tightening mode and markets have not fully discounted this fact. You know, they did drop a little bit recently, you know, because of the rates and stuff and the economy, everybody's freaking out, recession. But what I don't think the markets have anticipated is the next leg down, which would be fueled by valuations coming in because of earnings coming in. You know, the initial downward movement in the overall market was basically probably due to just, you know, overall recession fears, tightening liquidity. And now this, the next leg down will be as earnings start to compress as that, you know, on a price to earnings ratio, those earnings go down and people start pricing that in. So I don't think that the bear market's over. I think that if you look at the forward returns based on the valuation overvaluation we had, these things always um, overcompensate. You know, you have a big boom and then the bus takes you lower than you, you anticipated. Now there will be opportunities. You know, there's always a bull market somewhere. You know, you've heard that adage and that's what we try to find here. So there are places and things that you can put money into that I think that will do well. And um, uh, I think one of them is, you know, I think that resources and energy in particular are going to outperform uh, the S&P 500 over the decade. And that's how I look at these things. I don't, you know, I'm not a trader again. And a lot of people will say, well, that's just a cop out and, you know, whatever. But that's, uh, that's how we do it here. And we, we know that we're going to have a lot of volatility and we just uh, make the choice to go through that because we have a view towards the, you know, longer term. So one of the areas that I wanted to talk about was that I think, regardless of what happens, is going to uh, be a beneficiary of this energy crisis and is a place where the valuations are still low, but still looks like a path forward to, you know, exceptional uh, profits and cash flows, which is what we're concerned about, right? We want to see, we want to see companies that can generate above average cash flows and then do three things with those cash flows, pay down debt and then buy back stock and raise dividends. And coal is one of those areas that we think is going to be one of those places. And why? Well, we've suggested in the past that everybody hates coal, yet coal is necessary in the current environment and cannot be done away with. You know, with natural gas prices at, you know, five or six times uh, what the normal rates are in Europe, coal burning has been increased. Like I said, it's a molecule shortage. Here in the U.S., where you have $8 MCF gas, you know, anybody that can switch to coal burning has done that because coal is, again, ubiquitous, cheap, uh, accessible, and, uh, you know, works. So that's why people are going back to it. But the that's on the demand side. You know, we've seen record coal use this year, and we're anticipating, I mean, this is worldwide, 
and we'll see additional record coal use. You know, if you want to go through an exercise that's kind of fun, there's an anti-coal website. I think it's called coal.org or something like that. I don't know. I'll try to find it again. But it's interesting because it has a real-time global map that shows you every coal plant in operation, every coal plant that's being decommissioned, every coal plant that's under construction or being proposed. And you can like click on the little icons and it will tell you how many megawatts it is. And you will see that if you go uh, to the US or Western Europe, you'll see plants that are being decommissioned. But if you go to Asia, where the you know industrialization and the you know way of life, people are getting wealthier and need more energy to uh, propel this growth in their economies and in their standard of living, you will see that coal, they don't have a bias against coal like we have in the West because what's more important to them is quality of life and increasing that quality of life and wealth for their citizens. And so this is what we did in the West during the, you know, our age of coal. And so why would we not think that they would do that? Uh, there's not going to be a jump from, you know, burning animal dung and wood to solar panels. It's simply not going to happen because that's not how you industrialize and you urbanize a developing economy. Uh, you need baseload cheap power. So this is uh, comments from the, this is why you need to be in our Discord. I got this, one of the guys in the Discord put it up. You know, you get access to the Discord by becoming a member of the Actionable Intelligence Alert newsletter. And this is brought to uh, the group's attention. This is the uh, comments from the last, I believe, conference call that uh, Natural Resource Partners had. Natural Resource Partners owns a lot of ground, if you will, and then leases that ground to coal operators. And so they have their across many bases, I think in Illinois, Wyoming, different places around the U.S. And so this is what they're seeing. These are the comments. And I think they're instructive because I think this is the overall what we've been talking about. But I think it's, you know, from somebody that's got, that's in the business, that's seen, um, you know, basically what we've been reporting. And so these are the comments by the chief operating officer. Since we have such a broad, massive footprint in the coal, sp coal space with our acreage and such a view of a breadth of operators just across the whole coal patch, we are able to see the practical effect, impact of the difficulty operators are having getting people and sourcing capital. Remember that, sourcing capital, we've talked about that. Because of the hatred towards coal, who's going to give somebody money to build a new mine or expand the mine? Based on the activity or the lack of new activity on our acreage, we're just not seeing that there's new supply coming on to meet the demand and the higher prices that we've seen over this last year. And that is something that is different from every other cycle in the past. This is key. This is why the opportunity exists, guys. The previous cycles, high prices cure high prices. The price of coal, the price of nickel, the price of oil, what have you goes up. What happens? The people that are currently in that business get above average returns on their capital. And what does that do? That attracts more capital into that space to try to take advantage of those high returns. You get an excess of capital, an excess of new supply that drives the uh, price down. And then, you know, this is why you have the cyclicality of the resource markets. But what we're seeing, not just in the coal market, but a lot of other resource markets, especially though in coal here is what we're talking about, is that this is different from every other cycle because the new supply is not coming on. And so it goes on to say, and until operators are able to source capital, 
We hear this from all of our leasees. Until they're able to get new capital to expand new mines, and in some cases when they have the capital because maybe they've gone through bankruptcy or they run their business very well, and they have no leverage to speak of, and they're generating a lot of free cash flow. So this is a little bit discombobulated, but basically, you know, uh, until they get new source capital, there's not going to be any expansion. But who's going to give them capital? The banks have – see, this is what happens, right? The zeitgeist in the West is against fossil fuels, coal in particular. And so if you're JP Morgan or Citi or any of these bank, big banks – you already have internal mandates that you're not going to, you know, fund these things. Okay. So who's going to fund it? Um, you can do it from internal cash flow, but again, we've talked about that. You're not going to go to the board and say, you know what, guys, um, I want to build this new coal mine on spec. And I think because of the market, I mean, you're going to get laughed at her. So what is happening? You go and look at the, the, um, earnings reports of the coal operators, at least in the U S you're going to see something, common across all of them that they're not expanding they're paying down debt and then they're talking about you know return of capital to shareholders that is what they're doing okay so you have this demand that's there that can't necessarily be met that's why the price has moved up and no new supply coming on board so you have this artificial moat that's been created because of the government and because of the current fashionable thinking in the west and to sum up, a lot of times those are public companies and they have their public investors tell them, we don't want you putting in new capacity. So the shareholders don't want it. And it's not just retail. It's I'm talking about pension funds or people that own them are telling them, don't just return the cash to us. We want to milk this thing. And so if you're the president of Peabody or you're on the board of Arch or whatever, you're just going to sit there and go, okay, well, I don't have to do anything because all I have to do to collect my money and get my salaries to do what the market is telling me to do anyways, what the shareholders are telling me to do, which is just return capital, pay down debt, return capital. And I look like a hero. I don't have to go crazy. Now, at some point, I believe over the course of time, this is going to change because I think there's going to be a tremendous amount of social and political upheaval that's going to change the political structures. And then we are going to go back to hopefully rational thinking on energy and come up with real policy. And so we will facilitate, you know, the, the, the responsible exploitation of the resources that we have, but that's not going to happen anytime soon. I think we can all agree on that. And so this is why, you know, at the end here, this is the key statement. And this is, like I said, this is just one company that has one mind. This is, they have property all over the place. They're just not seeing anybody, you know, their leasees, so this is the key statement. So we're not seeing new supply coming online. That's it. And so, yes, in the short term, the prices of the companies are getting, you know, hit on. And, you know, met coal prices are down because steel making is going to contract during the recession. But thermal coal prices are up for making, you know, electricity. And we're in an energy crisis. So this is like, this is what I'm talking about. There's always going to be opportunities. And if you look longer term, if you understand what's really going on, then I think you can look past, you know, what's the mark, you know, the short term where the markets is a, you know, voting machine, but in the long term, those cash flows are there. I mean, I've, I've seen like a company like Peabody, they're just like retiring all of this debt that they have at a discount. They're just out there every, almost every week buying in their debt and retiring it. And so when they get done doing that, 
and they get done with the reclamation, you know, costs and funding, you know, that making sure that's fully funded and the black lung fund and all that stuff is funded. Then what do you do with the cash? I mean, at some point it just keeps piling up. I mean, it's kind of like, I remember that uh, scene in Scarface. I think I mentioned this before, you know, Frank Lopez, when that uh, Scarface guy, Tony Montana first got in the business, he said, your biggest problem is what to do with all the cash. And that seems to be, you know, is going to be a problem for a lot of these people because they're not, you know, not going to go out and build a new mine. Now, I think eventually it will, the dam will break and that will happen. But like I said, in the next several quarters or year, couple of few years, I just don't see it happening. So this is why I think that opportunity exists, even though, you know, because the overall market's going down and this, you know, recession talk and all this, and, you know, people get, you know, negative on these things automatically because it's first level thinking, right? Um, recession, therefore all commodities go down, sell all commodities. <clears throat> I mean, this is how the algos think. This is how first level thinking thinks. So if you can look past that, then I think that uh, if you can get above average returns on existing markets that have a government enforced mode around them, basically, or a zeitgeist mode, if you want to call it that, um, then these things are just going to mint cash. Now, will coal prices stay at record highs? No, they'll fluctuate, but they're going to be above the historical norm is what I'm suggesting. This is part of the problem, right? I mean, this is Europe, right? Gas prices hitting record highs. European Energy Exchange trading Europe index. I mean, euros per megawatt hour. This is from, you know, look what, what's happened. And this, remember, this started before the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. But it's been exacerbated because, like I said, you had all of these supply chains and systems that were flowing molecules to Europe. And then you artificially, it's like you're riding a bike and you take a steel rod and throw it in the front wheel on yourself. I mean, that's about the best analogy I can think of. What did you think was going to happen? And so, you know, there's not a lot of talk anymore. If you go and look, uh, I think there was a Gallup poll I saw, you could take it for what it's worth, but I saw it reported last week. Um interest or the major issues in the United States um, that people are concerned about. A lot of it was, you know, the high cost of living, the economy, job prospects, that type of thing. And then way, way down at the bottom at 1% was the war in Ukraine. This is exactly what I thought would happen. And, you know, I think it's probably higher in Europe because they're closer to it. But I think, you know, this is going to change people's views over time they're just you know now do i do i think prices stay up here this high i don't think so because you're just going to crush demand okay this is why i think europe is in big trouble i'm gonna get into some other slides further on where they're trying to compensate but i mean you've already had several coalition governments fail boris johnson's out in the uk uh draghi you see what's happening. I mean, it looks like uh, the right-wing parties in Italy are going to emerge as victorious in the next election in Italy. I mean, is the handwriting not on the wall for the Euro uh, for in Brussels? What's happening? Um, I said this before, and I'll continue to say it. As long as people's standard of living goes down, they're not, they're not going to say anything. If people have a full belly and go to their soccer matches and go on their vacations to Cyprus or Greece and whatever, what have you, go out on Friday and Saturday night and hang out with their friends. Nobody's going to really get too involved in politics. It's just how it is. But when you take all that away or you start, you know, and then, like I said, 
you know, you're going to see a slide later on where Olaf Schultz is talking, standing next to the gas turbine that uh, is supposed to go back to Nord Stream 1 and saying, this isn't my fault. This isn't our fault in Germany. This is the Russians' fault. It, it, but the problem is, is that the voter can't do anything <laughs> to, to the Russians, but he can do something to Olaf Schultz. He can vote him out of power. So this is what I suggest is going to happen over time. And they have no plan. I mean, I'm going to go into some more slides here. There is no plan. It's just uh, trying all this nonsense about taking showers and turning up thermostats. It's not going to work. I mean, major petrochemical plants are going to shut down in Europe. We've already seen aluminum smelting plants in Romania, fertilizer plants in Germany, the BASF major works uh, that's has like 30,000 employees is at risk of shutting down. And a lot of these things won't reopen when they shut down. Okay. So, um, you know, a lot of people have suggested, well, this is, you know, the green party is kind of not unhappy about this because they want to see Germany deindustrialize. Well, that's very interesting, but I don't think the, all of the German people, that's not what they were sold, but we'll see. All right. These things take time, but this is what we've been projecting. And it makes, it's important because political turmoil will lead to economic turmoil, in my view, at least in the short and midterm. So here's a little blurb from Bloomberg. You know, Hungary eases logging in protected forests to tackle gas crunch. So you're hungry for molecules, any molecules you can get. And uh, these are you know little vignettes or anecdotal things that we see that individually don't mean anything, but collectively are starting to build a case or have built a case, in my view, and continue to reinforce the case that Europe is in big trouble. I mean, they better really hope in Europe that they don't have a cold winter. It's going to be ugly in Europe this winter, in my view. And we're not that far away, guys. It's, it's August, you know, September, October, November, December. That's it. And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, all of this talk, I, you know, I talked about last week, you know, Robert Habeck talking about, well, this is the Russians' fault, and it's not our fault. And it doesn't matter, or they're 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 being unfair. Well, why don't you give them back the three hundred billion dollars that you seize from their central bank, and maybe they'll talk to you about their gas. I mean, these people wanted a war. NATO and the U.S. The Anglosphere wanted this. They got it. They thought it was going to work. The sanctions it didn't, and they have no plan, guys. And it's astonishing to me that this just it's like watching somebody drown. Okay, and the best thing to do when somebody's drowning, if you're not a trained rescuer, is to do what? Get away from them. Uh, that that's my view. So I don't uh, I don't envy them. I don't envy these people. Um, hopefully, you know they're talking about the Freeport uh, LNG export facility coming on coming back online earlier than anticipated. But we already have. You know, there's an interesting speak to this. There was an interesting interview on Macro Voices, which I put up on the website. Oh, I wanted to announce that too. The um, I finally got the actionable intelligence alert um, website back up, so I'll be posting things there. So I'll put a link in the uh, show notes, so you can go back there. Uh, but there's an interesting interview on Macro Voices last week uh, or week before last with um, Adam Rosenzweig from Gordon and Rosenzweig, and he has been. Those guys have been pretty prescient. And spot on on their views and projections of like, you know, how we were going to get into this energy crisis, which was going to happen regardless of the war. The war just, like I said, pushed everything forward and, and, and put the thing on steroids. And so one of the things he's talking about is the, you know, you have this dichotomy where you have like, 
you know, these high LNG prices uh, around the world, 40 or $50 in MCF, and it's like eight bucks here in the US. But, you know, what do we get to we, with this export facilities? And, you know, the fact that we don't have inexhaustible um, reserves, and it looks like, you know, maybe the um, Marcellus Shale, which has been fueling a lot of our natural gas growth, is reaching its maximum output and could be rolling over. These fields eventually roll over, guys. They don't just go forever. And so, you know, what if U.S. natural gas prices start moving to close that gap between the U.S. and the world market? And so that was an interesting conversation, I thought. Uh, which you might want to check out. And that's, you know, that's an arbitrage play. Of course, people are going to export as much gas as they can from the U.S. because they're trying to capture that, that uh, differential. And so, you know, um, again, though, we haven't seen a lot of, you know, more drilling there. So I don't know. It's, uh, we are, this is, like I said, there's a lot of things going on that you have to keep, you know, keep cognizant of. So here's what we're talking about. Um, I'll put links to these as usual in the show notes. You can go read the articles yourself. Some of them were behind paywalls, but I was able to get around it by going to um, um, those mirror sites that, that capture stuff. But anyways, I'll put the links and you can go there and read them. So Spain bans AC dropping below 80 degrees Fahrenheit threatens massive fines. So you can't, you know, you can't lower your AC below 80 degrees Fahrenheit. And I mean, it's just sweltering in these places right now in the summertime. So it says, citing, quote, a real risk of a natural gas shortage during the coming winter, unquote. The Spanish government has decreed that all shops, department stores, cinemas, hotels, and public buildings cannot have air conditioning set below 27 degrees Celsius, just below 81 degrees Fahrenheit in the summer. And you can't have heating above 19 degrees in the winter, which is 66 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's going to make it very uncomfortable in the winter and the summer. Uh, for people in Spain. You know, what's interesting is Spain only gets, I think, 10% of its gas from Russia or most of it comes from Algeria. Guess what Algeria is now saying? They want to join the BRICS. They want to join the uh, other side of the multipolar world. This is what is happening, guys. This is why, you know, if you're in Algeria and you have this declining resource and you're like, you know, I'm sure they've been, you know, talked down to and felt put upon by the Europeans for many years, as a lot of the developing world has. Uh, they think that maybe they've been treated unfairly. And so you see this emergence of this block with Russia, China, Iran, Brazil, South Africa, and these people are saying, look, if we kind of merge our interests, we can dictate terms. We can be on an equal footing with the West, which we feel has exploited us for decades. Now, whether that's true or not, whether that's actually happened, whether that's a fair assessment, it's irrelevant. But this is the problem that I think a lot of people in the West have. They don't understand what the other part, they don't seem to consider or want to consider what the other party that they're dealing with thinks or cares about or what their view is or what their needs are. You know, it's one of the things I learned in negotiations training when I was uh, involved in union leadership. You have to create an environment where you can get win-win outcomes for for both parties in a negotiation or a relationship. If it's going to be one-sided, when the other side, at some point, if it does get advantage on you and you've been, and they felt that they've been exploited for a long time, which is a lot of people in the developing world feel that the West, and in particular, the United States and the Anglosphere has been, you know, 
exploiting them for many years, then when they have this opportunity, they're going to take it. And this is what this is why you're seeing this realignment and from this unipolar world controlled by the West, dictated upon by the West to 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 you know another another block. So this is these are not things that are going to happen in a month or two, but these are things that we need to watch because they're going to have uh, repercussions. They're going to have, like I said, this is going to be a decade of tremendous economic, political, and social upheaval that we can't even begin to forecast. So going on with this article, additionally, the lights and shop windows must be turned off at 10 p.m. and access doors to the premises must close automatically to ensure air does not get out. Quote, we cannot afford to lose even a single kilowatt hour, unquote, explained Spain's third vice president, Teresa Rivera. So there you are. You're going to be hot in the summer and cold in the winter in Spain, looks like. And uh, I don't know what the plan is going forward to fix that there. They didn't seem this just reacting with no long-term plan. So here's a tweet. Uh, I will put, there's a... Uh, a couple of reports that I'm going to include from the IEAs, one of them, I think, and one of them's from S&P, but it talks about these things. To meet energy transition targets using wind, solar, and electric vehicles requires mining more copper than the entire world has used in the last 120 years. So the projected transition targets that these comic book people in Europe and the U.S. have put out require that we mine more copper than we've used in 120 years. And they want to do this transition in the next 10 or 20 years. How is that going to happen? When we explained last week, for example, that Chile has already delayed six mines. The, the era of just going around and doing whatever you wanted in Chile and Congo and all these places, it's, it's kind of ending. You're seeing, going to see more resource nationalism, more environmental problems, longer lead times on getting mines up and running. And so this is the bottom line. There's not enough existing or planned mining capacity to supply the copper. Yes, we're in a economic pullback. So we're in a cyclical retreat because of the overall economic uh, recession that a lot of countries are in. But longer term, we don't have the mines. This was not only said by uh, this report that you're going to that I'm going to put access to, but they say it. Every, they've said it for like the last two or three years at the mining in Daba in South Africa, where the mining companies get together and say, "Where is this? Where is this cop? Where are these materials going to come from? We don't have the ability in the current environment to deliver this material." And so this is part of the whole mindset that we have here at Actionable Intelligence: heads we win, tails we win more. So if you want to have this energy transition where on one side where the government puts its thumb on the scale and doesn't allow development of fossil fuels we win there with higher prices and then we don't have the sufficient materials to do the energy transition and the government or governments are doing a lot to hinder the development of new mines that we to get the materials to do the energy transition we win there even more so it doesn't matter what they do we win if we can see past the fog that we're in now a little bit, I think that uh, ultimately, you know, you're going to do very well. And so it's going to be very incumbent upon us to really look at jurisdictions, look what's going on company by company. Uh, where are they building mines? Where are their legacy mines at? Um, what kind of relationships do they have with the government? And what are those governments doing to either 
incentivize or hinder further development. So the recent uh, bill that came out from Congress that's supposedly going to get passed, uh, whatever is hundreds of billions of dollars, lower inflation bill or whatever, but it's basically this Green New Deal and tax policy. But anyways, one of the provisions in there is $30 billion for nuclear plants in the US. From the article, struggling nuclear reactors would get a $30 billion lifeline under the Democrats' climate change and tax bill that could save dozens of nuclear power plants from an early retirement. The proposed $15 per megawatt hour credit for existing nuclear plants, which provide about 19% of the nation's electricity, will help an industry that has undergone a wave of closures. Reactors have high operating costs and are increasingly struggling to compete with cheaper electricity produced using natural gas and renewables. The nuclear provision expected to, quote, keep much, if not all, of that at-risk capacity on the grid. This really is this is really important to continuing progress for decarbonization of the grid. So this is positive, obviously. Uh, again, we're already positive on uranium and nuclear power. This is more, you know, if this goes through, this will be positive. Then, you know, what's interesting to note though is just the continued sticking of their fingers of government. You know, going to give tax credits for renewables. And what did that do? That pushed a lot of the higher cost generation off the grid. Then you had renewable mandates and people had to buy so much renewable. So that pushed higher cost generation off the grid. So now we're going to fix that by creating another program and more tax incentives or credits. Uh, you know, it's just a never ending, you know, series of government interventions in the economy. Uh, but, you know, I'm just pointing this out that the uh, with these power plants, it's probably going to be end up being a good thing because, like I said, we don't have inexhaustible natural gas, and natural gas is at eight dollars an MCF, so that changes the economics. You know, one of the things I think the U.S. has been spoiled by, and you'll see a lot of the decarbon, well, lower CO two was not because of renewables; it was because of you know we switched from coal uh, to uh, natural gas generation over the last ten or fifteen years. So a lot of the coal that was retired was replaced by natural gas combined cycle plants. And so that was a manifestation of, you know, a decade or so of, you know, $2 an MCF gas. Well, gas is at four times that level now. So you're going to have fuel pass through. So that changes the economic economics. You know, if you have a view that this is just a short term anomaly, and we're just going to have, you know, all of this pullback to two or $3 an MCF, then, you know, that's a, that's a view that some people have. If you have the view that um, we're going to have higher than you know normal or higher uh, a higher bar for gas prices going forward, then you know that's a different uh, that's a different outcome for certain companies. Uh, chart off of Doomberg's Twitter: German year ahead baseload electricity. You can see what the problem is here. Uh, <laughs> You can see, you know, it was even rising before, and then, you know, it's just been taking off even recently. Uh, a lot, I think, you know, because of the realization setting in about uh, what's going on with uh, natural gas supply and things of this nature. Plus, demand's up over there because of the heat waves and stuff. But uh, this is crazy. This is like, you know, if you go back to 
2020 um, or 2021 August last year, I mean, electricity prices in Germany, wholesale or base electricity, you know, was at like 60 bucks. Now it's hitting 400. So it's, you know, five, six, seven times higher. I mean, that's going to get passed through to consumers and into industry. It's going to cause a lot of discombobulation. We've seen, you know, various, a couple few energy companies go out of business or file bankruptcy. So again, the government has to step in and this could all be alleviated. I mean, got to cut a deal at some point. And I think some commenters and pundits I've listened to have said that even if the war was concluded and they get a peace treaty and all this stuff and whatever ends up happening, I'm not sure the Russians are going to be interested in doing business with Europe again. I don't, I'm not sure you go back to the old normal. And this is a problem because I think a lot of people are assuming that's what's going to happen. And I'm not sure that's going to happen. I think that there's a lot of other weaker coalition governments in Europe. And I think that the Russians uh, have already seen what higher energy prices have done to several coalition governments. And I think that, you know, whether you think that they can take the turbine back and get the, it does, that, this is all irrelevant. Um, if both parties feel like they're in a war environment, and I have said this before, we're in World War III now, whether people want to acknowledge it, it won't be, you know, like previous wars, it'll be these proxy conflicts and these regional conflicts punctuated with uh, all kinds of economic warfare, then, uh, you know, this is what you can expect. But why, why, if the Russians now are going to shift their focus to Asia and can do that over time, when the, when the negotiations come up for, you know, when these current contracts run out or whatever, what have you, why would they sign new ones with Europe? Then what's, what's Europe going to do? This is, this is what they were, you know, goaded into by the U.S. Uh, the U.S. is going to cut Ukraine loose, just like it cut Afghanistan loose and cut the Iraqi, the Kurds loose. We have a history of doing this. When it doesn't go the way we want, we cut people loose. And then what do we do? We had Anthony Blinken flying over to Kosovo in the last couple of weeks, stirring up crap over there with the Serbs and the Albanians, this crap that goes on with China. This, this is, this is, if you're sitting here telling me, this is me speaking as a U.S. citizen, I'm going to get on the soapbox for a minute. If you're going to sit there and tell me this is for the good of the world, uh, you and I have a different uh, outlook on the way things are. Okay. Uh, we need to be de-escalating these things, not you know, escalating things. We don't have the ability. We are in decline. We are in economic decline in the West. Why are we, you know, we have an emergence. And so this is what happens throughout history, right? The hegemon loses power over time. The emerging uh, power, power or powers is increasing. And then eventually there's going to be conflict, right? And hopefully it won't end in a nuclear war, but that's what we're seeing now. And this is the, this is the result. This is the chaos that I told you was going to happen. So here we go. Um, last week, and I'll put a link to this article. Hopefully you can see it. Like I said, it was cached. I was, was behind the FT's paywall, but uh, there's ways to sometimes get behind them. Titled this slide, Physics Trumps Politics in Germany. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, the wet noodle, who's the chancellor, said it might, quote, make sense, unquote, to extend the life of Germany's last nuclear power plants as reduced gas flows from Russia raise the prospect of a winter energy crunch in Europe's largest economy. No kidding. 
He said the three plants due to close at the end of this year only accounted for, quote, a small portion, unquote, of Germany's total electricity capacity. But still, it might make sense to let them run for longer, he added. Quote, it's obvious that nothing, absolutely nothing stands in the way of this turbine being transported to Russia and installed there, unquote. Yeah, except for the fact that you're in a war with Russia. And it's manifests as economic war. It doesn't, you know, this casting of blame doesn't solve anything. That's the problem. And like I've said before, you know, uh, the, I think I saw a recent poll in Germany that the majority of the people now are, are, are in favor of keeping these plants running. So you can see how the conversation moves, okay, as people understand their the, the career uh, dissolution light starts flashing uh, for these politicians, they start slowly morphing their view, right? Uh, it's, it, but still, it might make sense, is what Mr. Schultz said, okay? Even though it's a small proportion, it's not a big deal, guys, but it might make sense, you know? to let them run for longer. Yeah, because uh, you have these uh, electricity prices that are six and seven times what people are used to. And if you go ahead and shut them down, people are gonna go, people are not that dumb. They'll be like, wait a minute, my electricity costs are going through the roof. I just got laid off because the industry is being affected by these high power prices. And you're telling me we're shutting down these power plants? How does that play? People are not stupid. They do start paying attention, as I've said, because when their standard of living is affected. Again, you know, he did this speech or this press conference, if you will, standing next to the turban. I mean, it's so stupid, you know, like, oh, yeah, well, you're right, Mr. Schultz. Uh, you know, uh, the Russian, you know, Putin man bad, therefore blame on him. Uh, but people don't care. They can't do anything to Mr. Putin or the Russians. They can do something to Olaf Schultz and the coalition. So here we go. Same thing in California. I mean, I've said before many times, we have these existing labs for this idea that you can run major developed uh, economies on intermittent power sources, two of the biggest laboratories being Germany and California. And we're seeing the same thing in both of them. You know, here's California now. California facing blackouts, earmarks hundreds of millions to gas generation. This is another article in Politico. California wants to quit fossil fuels, just not yet. Faced with a fragile electrical grid and the prospect of summertime blackouts, the state agreed to put aside hundreds of millions of dollars to buy power from fossil fuel plants that are scheduled to shut down as soon as next year. Officials have warned that outages would be possible this summer with as many as 3.75 million California homes losing power in a worst case scenario of the West wide heat wave and insufficient electrical supplies, particularly in the evenings. Here's the key term that it's in the article. And I'll, like, yeah, I'll put the article. This is, sums it up for, in the end, this is what really matters. It's also an acknowledgement of the political reality that blackouts are hazardous to elected, elected officials, even in a state dominated by one party. You're absolutely right. You be sitting there in the dark with heat and humidity you're not going to get pissed off, guess again. And they're not going to, nobody, like I said, no one cares what the politicians in Sacramento or in these countries are doing behind the scenes for their little agendas until it drastically affects them. AKA, as I've said before, i.e. two by four upside the head. Then they, people wake up. Wait a minute. Why am I sitting here in the dark sweating to death? 
mean, it's, this is, we're going to see more of this. And so this is going to be the turmoil and the volatility of the political situation that's going to obviously have repercussions into the economic uh, environment also and the investment uh, schemes that we uh, are involved in. So here's another uh, article from Quillette that was behind a paywall, but I was able to get to it. I'll put a link to it. Hopefully you guys can see it. Global policy and politics, particularly in the high income world, that's Western Europe, the US, the developed world, Japan, have been obsessed with dreams of a green economy. Well, the average person isn't, but the elites are. Imposing ever more rigid methods to reduce greenhouse gas emissions as the way to, quote, save the planet, unquote, is almost unchallenged in the media, academia, and corporate boardrooms of the developed world. Yeah, that's what we've been talking about for the last two years here. The results on the ground have been less convincing as the price of everything from energy and food to construction costs rises to unsustainable levels and international trade slows as global recession looms. And it's a long article, but this is like the biggest thing. This is why you're going to see the upheaval. The biggest losers from greenflation are predominantly the largely powerless working class and the Denzians of developing countries. But even energy-rich and historically prosperous countries like Australia face severe price hikes and shortages, as do Canada and the U.S. So I'm going to suggest to you that, again, that we'll see what happens. But I, if these prices continue, if the standard of living continues to be affected, that uh, people are not going to be powerless for much longer. They're going to rise up. There's going to be change because people just are not going to put up with it. I've said it once and I've said it again. Nobody cares if they're sweating to death about hearing about CO2 emissions because they can't see it. It's, 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 a, it's an opaque concept that most people can't get their head around. Yeah, they might be brain. I mean, like I said, it's a lot of these bureaucrats and these capitals and these power and these politicians over time doing these little projects. And most people don't pay attention because it wasn't directly affecting them. We had an era of ultra low interest rates. Everybody was, you know, riding high on the hog. People weren't being affected. Their bread and circuses was not affected. But like I said, sitting in the dark uh, with high grocery costs, sweating to death will change your views very quickly. Uh, that's what I've said in the past, and I continue to believe that, and we're seeing that starting to play out in Europe, like I said. So we'll continue to see if, you know, um, uh, the Green Parties and the Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum and the depopulationists like Bill Gates uh, can continue to maintain the momentum uh, in the face of people, you know, having to endure hardship. I just don't think people will do that, so... All right, guys, uh, that's it for this week. Uh, appreciate your uh, tuning in. And uh, like I said, uh, help us out if you can. If you enjoy these uh, videos, like, share, comment, and we appreciate the viewership. Okay, guys, that's it for this week. We'll talk to you next week.